electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Brian. And hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. A big disappointment on the jobs front with a major silver lining on wages. On top of that clash between jobs and wages comes a clash between the confidence of consumers and CEOs. Does one explain the other? We'll explore with the conference board, Steve Odland. And in the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, are insurance premiums for people and businesses about to spike? We'll look at the storm's impact and what it means if these events become increasingly normal. Plus, first Exxon, now Chevron. Activist investing firm Engine Number 1 is reportedly revving up to take on another big oil producer, the high-profile board fight that could be shaping up. But we begin with today's market action. For that, please follow me as our Dom Chu enjoys his long Labor Day weekend. I'll run you through it right here. The Dow's down 95 points right now. That's a quarter percent. The S&P flattish, down by four. And the Nasdaq is the only one in the green today, hanging on to a gain of about 2122 points. I want to run you through a bigger look at what's going on in markets, though, as we get a feel for what the reaction to that jobs number uh, this morning really was. So let's start with the metals. Some of the biggest moves we are seeing here in things like silver spiking nearly 4% today, gold higher as well. Look at this, even copper turning positive on the week. Not what you might expect if we were talking about a macro slowdown story, platinum up a couple percent, palladium in the green as well. Now, we do have reopening sectors falling today, cruises, airlines, casinos, some of the casual dining names. Here's Carnival down 5%. So a pretty significant move to the downside there, which does jive with what we heard in the slowing in leisure and hospitality this morning in that employment report. Meanwhile, we also have a couple of big earnings movers to quickly tell you about. Look at MongoDB adding 25 percent today. Pager due to get 11 percent, even DocuSign adding five and a half percent. And perhaps most significantly, take a look at the 10 year Treasury yield moving higher today. Yes, higher. Here's when the report came out at 830 We saw this initial spike lower as people were concerned about the headline miss. Then we saw this lift higher, which we've held throughout the session today, as more analysts look at the impact that higher wages could have on the Fed's future progression, even if they punt on the taper for the time being. And on that note, let's get right out to Rick Santelli for more market reaction for us. Rick? Yes, and let's look at the charts and talk about maybe a a, a post-mortem on exactly what prompted that big U-turn Kelly is talking about. Look at an intraday of 10, Jess. Initial drop down about 1.27, 1.28, and then boom, we definitely did a U-turn. But if you look at a one-month chart, they're firming. Rates are firming in the U.S. But when you contrast that with a a one-and-a-half-month chart on Boone's going back to the middle of July, you can surely see that they are much hotter in Europe. Next Thursday's their policy meeting. Many believe they're going to have a little more religion with regard to their buying programs than our Fed does at this point in time. And it doesn't stop there. Look at their currency. Fresh two-month highs for the euro and the dollar index hovering at fresh one-month lows. So what exactly prompted that U-turn? Well, Kelly hit one of them, uh, up six-tenths on average hourly earnings month over month. 
Prior to COVID, there was only one time that occurred, up 0.6, and that was very early when this data series started. But there's another issue. Anybody out there watching that's a trader will understand this. If you predicted a weak jobs report and you were long treasuries looking for rates to fall, you were correct. But what happened is there was a reassessment, whether it was the pricing on the earnings or the notion it's not going to dramatically change the timeline of the Fed. If you don't get paid, you cover your positions. So they started to sell. And they're selling? Well, it was aided and contributed to by new selling brought in by some of those wage numbers. And you see what's going on now. We are not only up a handful on the day, we're actually now up on the week on long-dated treasuries. Kelly? Great explanation, Rick. Thank you. Rick Santelli out in Chicago. Now let's get to Washington, D.C. Some breaking news and new details on tax hikes under consideration by Democrats. Elon Moy has the story for us. Elon. Well, Kelly, Democrats are debating a laundry list of potential tax increases as they search for ways to pay for their upcoming $3.5 trillion spending package. Now, I got a copy of the changes under discussion, and they include some familiar provisions like raising the corporate tax rate, though it doesn't specify whether that would be to 28 percent or to something lower like 25 percent, establishing a minimum corporate tax of 15 percent and reforming the international tax code. However, there are some new ideas as well, including an excise tax on companies that buy back their stock, though it doesn't say what that rate would be. There's also a new tax on corporations in which CEO pay exceeds average worker pay by a certain amount. That's something Senator Bernie Sanders has proposed multiple times. And a requirement for billionaires to pay taxes on unrealized gains on publicly traded assets like stocks. The document says that provision would apply to about 600 people, but raise hundreds of billions of dollars. There would also be a cap on what Democrats are calling mega retirement accounts. It would require distribution if an IRA exceeds a set threshold. Now, not all of these provisions are of equal weight. The document includes the potential for an excise tax on plastic, for example, as well as a carbon tax, which the Biden administration had previously opposed. But it is clear that the debate over how to pay for this $3.5 trillion spending package is heating up. Not all of these ideas are going to survive. Some new ones are likely to emerge as well. But Democrats are weighing which dials to turn and how far to turn them as they face that September 15th deadline to finish writing the text of this new bill and deliver on President Biden's economic agenda. Kelly. Looking through some of these items, Elon, as, as we are learning more about them, the stock buyback excise tax, for instance, would apply to publicly traded corporations that buy back a significant amount of stock to reduce the benefits of tax arbitrage, uh, arbitrage compared with dividends and stock price game playing. Alternatively, they say they can treat buybacks as deemed dividends to all shareholders. So this would be this would be a pretty big deal. And this, like you said, is just one of dozens of things under consideration here. Would you say this is the first fleshed out picture we're getting of how the three and a half trillion dollar budget would be paid for? And this doesn't list which ones would contribute which dollar amounts to get us to that total. Yeah, the dollar figures, the ultimate revenue raised will depend on where those thresholds are sent. What is the rate for that excise tax? What is the rate for the corporate tax? And which number of these items you would have to put into the pie in order to raise that $3.5 trillion number. So one of the things that was surprising about this list is that it went beyond what the Biden administration had previously proposed in terms of its menu of options to pay for uh, to pay for the spending package. So there are a lot of different ideas under discussion because Democrats are trying to find uh, that compromise that can get enough 
all 50 Democrats on board with this plan, um, but yet uh, not necessarily alienate some moderates like Joe Manchin. So you might have to do some um, unconventional provisions in order to make that happen. Yeah, Manchin just publishing that op-ed in the journal saying this was uh, too far. And a lot of people think they're just going to walk it back a couple hundred billion. But we'll have to still see which of these would be required to pay for that if that becomes important. Elon, we appreciate it for now. Uh, we'll turn to our next guest. Bill Lee is chief economist at the Milken Institute and also a former Fed and IMF economist. Bill, we wanted to get your take on the jobs report today, but given the news that's just crossed, do you mind reacting to some of the items Elon just laid out as pay-fors for this budget? What would the economic implications, the market implications of these be? Well, for all the rhetoric that we just heard, I think the emphasis is still to put the burden of the financing of both reconciliation and infrastructure on the corporate sector. Yes, we're spreading it around a little bit differently, but ultimately it falls in the corporate sector. And and that I, the principle was to try to avoid taxing the average guy and, and to the average worker. But we all know from every study that's ever been done is that the corporate taxes always fall on the working guy. And 75 to 80 percent of those corporate taxes go there. So in my in my sense of the of the assessment of what's going on is we're endangering the Fed's ability to fight inflation because the offset to the higher wages uh, that we see, the high inflation that we see today, are the productivity gaining investments that are being made in the corporate sector. If we endanger that, we won't get the offset. The Fed's going to have to do much more in aggressive tightening. So in Bill Lee's view of the world, we have sticky price pressures, uh, corporations paying higher tax, meaning the economy is less productive. So these price price pressures are persistent enough that the Fed has to come in and kind of throw the brakes on for everybody and slow the economy in in a way that they otherwise might not have to in a a strong productivity world. Let's go back to one of the points you were making, which is that the Biden administration doesn't want to increase taxes on people making below $400,000. So it's turning to the corporate sector. And people are pointing out kind of the point that you're making, which is that implicitly this acts as a tax uh, or a break on the economy, in, in part, like you mentioned, because corporations still employ people and maybe they can employ fewer of them. But there are going to be plenty out there, Bill, who say that this is exactly where the U.S. should be turning because the corporate tax rate was substantially higher just a few years ago with no discernible negative effect. What would your reply to that be? I would say that the benefit of having this lower corporate tax rate and the improvement in productivity enhanced investment is that the Fed has really had no inflation problem to fight at all. In fact, they had a disinflationary problem. Uh, we had so much in the way of productivity gains and, and so much in the way of uh, downward price pressure. They're trying to achieve their 2% target. Yes, I agree that we could redistribute the burden of taxes better. But I think the easier way to do that is to administratively collect more revenues by closing the loopholes. Now, that's, of course, easier said than done. Everyone says we should close loopholes, but it seems that that is the front that no one seems to address, and instead it's going through higher tax rates. And I think that's a, a misguided policy. I think the other thing to keep in mind is the bigger the spending packages, the bigger the demand that's put out in the economy, the more the Fed will have to fight later on because the private sector is really where we want the growth to come from, not the infrastructure type spending, which really is quite minimal. But really, the, that reconciliation package of putting entitlements out there, that's the danger we have to keep an eye on. How big are the loopholes that you referenced? How much revenue could they possibly raise? And how would you tie this all back to the labor market? I think the one thing that we need to keep in mind is that you and I pay our taxes because it's collected directly from our salaries. Where the loopholes are would be 
all the write-offs that companies have as well as individuals have, especially the, the higher income individuals, in being able to reduce the incidence of their taxes. So those are the a myriad of, of things that have gone into the tax code over the decades, and that's a, a quagmire that's very hard to untangle. But if there's any headway to be made, that's where it's going to be made. And by raising uh, rates even more, it just incentivizes more of these loopholes to be put in place. Ironically, I don't think I believe the Democratic bill would still support uh, repealing the salt cap, meaning, in other words, giving more tax breaks to high net worth earners. But we'll continue to look through this. Bill, thanks for your time this morning, especially pivoting to this issue and being able to explain it so well. Uh, we do appreciate it. We'll check back in with you soon. That's Bill Lee of the Milken Institute. The S&P and the Nasdaq are pacing for a second straight week of gains, hovering near all-time highs even amid slowing jobs growth and weakening data. Will this have a bigger ripple effect for markets if policymakers have to react in a knee-jerk way? Joining me now, Gus Fauché is PNC Financial's chief economist, and Nancy Tangler is Laffer Tangler Investments CIO. Welcome to you both. Gus, I'll start with you. What's your reaction to the slowing jobs report this morning, the wage pressures that we saw, and what this all means for the Fed? So even though we had weaker job growth than expected in August, we still seen the economy add an average of 750,000 jobs per month over the last three months. That's a very solid number. I think there were some one-time factors that weighed on job growth in August, but I still think that the economy is expanding. That we're adding jobs at a pretty good clip. I would expect st- stronger job growth through the rest of this year. Uh, and I think that the labor market overall is in good shape. Uh, there's competition for workers that helped drive that big uh, increase that we saw in average hourly earnings over the month. And I think that things, uh, despite some downside risks from the Delta variant, still look pretty solid. Nancy, would you agree with that? I know your focus on productivity gains, which Bill Lee was just uh, talking about, is you know, he's concerned they could be under threat here, uh, depending on how the economy evolves and what policymakers are likely to do. How would that affect the way you're invested? Well, we, I, I agree with Gus. I mean, I think that the average hourly earnings uh, pop is, is also somewhat uh, driven by the fact that services jobs grew at, at a zero pace. And so what we prefer to look at the employment cost index, which kind of smooths the movement between occupations and jobs. And that, that number will be very important to look at as it relates to, to productivity. But with corporations having $6.8 trillion in cash on their balance sheets, uh, despite the, the new tax potential tax proposal, they're using it to buy back shares, but also to invest in CapEx, which will continue to drive productivity. So since April, we've been moving our portfolios to to a greater focus on on tech, cloud, semis, the things that are going to drive the narrative and the productivity narrative in the coming years. And you also, as I see, are putting on some hedges, let's call it, to the broader market's performance for the first time since, you know, early last year before the pandemic really set in. Why is that? Well, you know, some of this is just instinct, Kelly, but but much of it is just driven by the fact that can you find cheap stocks, high quality cheap stocks? Because if you can't, that usually is an indicator uh, that the market is beginning to, to top. And then there's always the um, AAII, which is the American Association of Individual Investors bull bear um, metric. And that peaked a couple of, of um, weeks ago. And that usually uh, leads a market correction. We've been a long time without one. We've been expecting one for a while. And so we thought this was a prudent time, uh, particularly since the insurance is very cheap right now mm-hmm. with the VIX at relatively low levels. Yeah. Gus, final question, you know, with the report this morning with some mixed signals, but overall your belief that the economy is still strong and expanding, should the Fed delay the taper? 
Um, we were expecting that the Fed would announce in their early November meeting that they are going to start to taper in December. That doesn't change. Uh, I think you saw some FOMC participants who are pushing for a, a sooner uh, reduction in the balance sheet, but I think that we'll have a, you know, the September jobs report will come out in early October. I think that will indicate better job growth. And I think the Fed is on track if they wait until November and start to reduce those purchases in December. All right. So still could be a 2021 event. Gus and Nancy, thank you for your reaction and thoughts today. Gus Fauché and Nancy Tangler. Coming up, the Delta variant is putting a dent in consumer confidence, but one group's optimism is back to pre-pandemic levels. It might surprise you the details and what's behind the growing divergence next. Plus, insurance rates are on the rise as extreme weather around the country becomes more common. We'll tell you what it means for your wallet and why you may no longer be covered at all in some cases. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. The Delta variant weighing heavily on jobs data and on consumer confidence in particular. Not everyone is feeling super pessimistic, though. Let's dig in here. The University of Michigan consumer confidence data in August tumbled to its lowest level since 2011. It was worse than during when the pandemic first set in. It dropped 13 points from the prior month. The conference board's reading confirmed that this week, showing similar declines to a six-month low. Now, in a recent survey from KPMG, they showed... CEO confidence is back to pre-pandemic highs, with 60% of executives confident about the global economy over the next three years. So what explains this gap between consumers and the C-suite? Joining me now is Steve Odland. He is president and CEO of the conference board and a CBC contributor. Steve, it's great to have you. I mean, normally I would say, well, the, the CEO confidence is a good sign that hiring will continue. But I'm listening to what just came out of Washington, what Elon Moy told us about various corporate tax proposals to pay for the budget and wondering, will this confidence last? Yeah, Kelly, it's a good question because, you know, in this survey, uh, it was done prior to the Delta uh, surge here. So it was done back in, in July and it was focused on the next three years. So I think CEOs are looking at this thing. They were a little bit more bullish. If they did it today, I'm, I'm sure that the CEOs would be less bullish. But if you're looking at a three year timeline, I think CEOs are thinking that things will, uh, you know, will get back somewhat to normal and they're somewhat bullish on that. The conference board's consumer confidence index was terrible. I mean, it was uh, it was a six month low, but it was diving uh, future expectations. And that's really a measure of the here and now what consumers are are experiencing. And that was driven almost entirely by the resurgence of the 
COVID virus and the concern that jobs will cut back. And so you saw in the jobs report today exactly that happening with uh, especially the service uh, industries now cutting back or at least plateauing in job creation. So I think everybody's sort of coalescing here and putting the brakes on. I think the headline, Kelly, is COVID lives, jobs die. Wow. Which is unfortunate, 18 months into this, when we were hoping we were starting to get back to normal much more quickly. So how do you think, I don't know which of these is going to be enacted and, and to what degree, but we have now proposals to raise the corporate tax rate, to possibly have a stock buyback excise tax, to have a tax on excess uh, corporate CEO, among other items here, Steve, to pay for the $3.5 trillion budget. Tell me what you think the important numbers are are to watch there. I mean, we know a lot of this is posturing. Um, we've seen a lot of these proposals for years and years and years. What's the biggest one on your agenda? Well, you know, three and a half trillion dollars is in- incredible. I mean, that's as much as almost as much as the entire budget for the United States. And we're running a trillion dollar deficit on that natural budget. So this would be all 100 percent debt. You can raise the corporate rate, but you're not going to raise more money. We've proven that over and over and over again. Um, to the extent that corporations do have to pay uh, higher taxes through, you know, and they're not able to restructure, it'll get passed through to the consumer in terms of pricing. So all of this lands on the economy one way or another and diminishes the growth. And then you have to worry about what happens here to inflation and the value of the dollar as you continue to uh, put more and more trillions of debt on there. At some point, you know, the, the dollar doesn't become an attractive reserve currency and, and you start slipping into higher and higher inflation. And that's why when you look at today's inflation, you don't know how much of it is strictly, a, you know, an imbalance between supply and demand and people starting to get nervous that the debt levels are um, are really getting too high. Yeah, no, it's always something that's floating around out there. Um, I guess the, the last thing that, that I would ask is about Delta itself. I mean, do you pick up on anything and the high-frequency data that would suggest that companies are somewhat akin to the stock market in the way they're acting here. I mean, a moment ago we said, you know, Delta spreads, hiring stops. But hopefully maybe people say it's, a, you know, it's peaking. The stock market is obviously looking past it. Uh, could that be the case with corporate America or no? Well, you know, part of this depends on, on, on the employees, right? And so the conference board just did a return to work survey and 42% of the people say they don't want to go back to work. Wow. I mean, they're really worried. Uh, and that's double what it was just a couple of months ago. So Delta is impacting this. And that's particularly the case with women and millennials. Um, you know, and we've got more than a third of people uh, who are surveyed saying they're looking to leave their organizations, especially those organizations that require in-office work and especially those organizations that require vaccination. So you've got a lot of different things pulling here. So if people, if companies can't get the labor they need, if they can't get back to normal, if the travel industry doesn't get back to normal, you're going to see the brakes put on again. And, you know, these things don't happen, you know, just rateably where, you know, it smooths out. You can get a really fast stop to this thing and then um, you know, it, it, it takes a jump start to get going again. So that's what we're worried about here. It was all looking pretty good, but, you know, Delta has thrown a big monkey wrench into the works. And that's an amazing stat. We're showing it on screen again that only 4% of workers want to return to the office permanently. That is that is almost almost shocking. I almost don't believe that. It's so shockingly low, except that I, it makes sense. No, it makes sense. And, you know, you have 20% of the people saying, I, I just I, I want to work permanently remotely. This is working just fine and so yeah. forth. And the smart companies here are making it voluntary. They're trying to get back into a cadence of in-office 
but they're trying to make it voluntary. So, you know, but you can't do that in the service industry. You, you know, you can't cut hair virtually and, yeah. and other things. So, you know, there are some limitations to this, but I, I, I think we've got to get through this variant. We've got to see whether these vaccines hold up. You know, this is the other thing. Two vaccines, we thought we were done, but now you're seeing some, some of these variants, the Mu variant coming through and, and overriding the vaccine. So there's still a lot we don't know about this, uh, this virus and the mutations and, and the impact on people, on the impact on the vaccines, and therefore yeah. the impact on companies in the economy. No, well said. Steve, thanks for joining us today. It's good to see you. Thank you, Kelly. Steve Odlin with the conference board. Coming up, Reddit's reportedly looking to hire advisors for its IPO, but will Wall Street bet on Wall Street bets? We debate that in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Let's get a quick check on markets. Dow's down 48 points right now. At the lows, we are down 174, so it has been a comeback story as we head into the mid-afternoon. S&P flat, Nasdaq's up 33, and the tech sector is leading today at setting a new intraday high over in the S&P. There you can see the performance behind me. And let's look ahead now to some of the companies that report their earnings next week. We have Coupa and Casey's on Tuesday. RH, Lululemon, and GameStop on Wednesday. That'll be one to watch. And Affirm reports on Thursday. Remember, its shares soared 50% this week on news of its partnership with Amazon. Kroger rounds out the week on Friday, where we're likely to get some commentary on inflation, rising costs, and possibly maybe a return to grocery stores as people are concerned about Delta. Now, from wildfires to hurricanes and heavy rainfall, the summer has seen its fair share of natural disasters. It's causing insurers to start reassessing coverage and costs. We'll tell you what it means for businesses and individuals alike in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. As the south and the northeast dry out and clean up from Ida's torrential rain and wildfires still rage out west, no surprise, insurers are sounding the alarm over the climate costs of all of these storms and climate change. Contessa Brewer joins me now with the details and who the industry is pointing fingers at and whether our bills are going up, Contessa. Well, Kelly, the damage costs from Hurricane Ida are mounting and the outlook door for properties damaged by flooding. 70% of the Louisiana flooding happened to properties that do not carry a flood insurance policy, according to CoreLogic. 46% didn't have coverage for wind damage. Shelly Yerkes heads up CoreLogic's Natural Catastrophe Perils Division, and she told me this storm ought to be a wake-up call to government, to businesses, and to property owners that they need to get real. They need to grapple with how much severe weather costs. More people are at more risk, she told me, than they think. And low risk doesn't mean no risk. Moderate risk means you probably flooded in this storm. Flood insurance is available even if it is not mandatory. But Yerk says only 4%, 4 of the people who live outside a FEMA-designated flood zone choose to buy flood insurance, as if the threat stops on some line on a map. 
CoreLogic's data analytics helped inform FEMA, which is, of course, repricing federal flood policies to more accurately reflect the risk. And this is not just about flooding, Kelly. Wildfire coverage is now difficult to impossible to secure in parts of California unless you go to specialty insurance. And the big carriers, Chubb, AIG, Travelers, Allianz, have limited or eliminated their exposure altogether. Now those policies, those coverage policies, can cost 10 times more than even a few years ago. But because they're highly regulated, because the state regulators, Kelly, decide when they can ramp up the prices, some of these guys say there's just no money in it. We got to get out of the game altogether. I'm wondering about that in New Jersey and some of these other states not used to tropical storm fallout, of course, as we all clean up. Contessa, thank you very much. Contessa Brewer with the latest on the insurance front. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. As the Taliban prepare to announce that co-founder Mullah Baradar will be leading the country's new government, residents of Kabul are telling Reuters that more people are attending prayer services at different mosque locations around the city. They say that many stayed away before because they were afraid of pickpockets. But since the Taliban took control, thieves have been much less active. Chanting, we Afghan women are all together. A group of women outside of Kabul's presidential palace called on the Taliban to respect their rights. The Taliban have said that they will not be as oppressive as they were while in control in the 90s, but there are widespread doubts that they will keep that promise. And tonight on the news, how the U.S. plans to approach Afghanistan's new government. And after missing the 2018 Olympics, National Hockey League players are set to play in the Winter Games next year. The league, the Players Union and international officials announced a deal today, but the league and players will have an opportunity to withdraw. The pandemic is bad enough. Here now, today, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. Coming up quickly already, Rahel. Thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. From redditors to stakeholders, Apple's potential chip tiff ahead of its anticipated iPhone 13, and data centers are where the action is, according to one firm. Those stories all coming up in rapid fire right after this. everybody let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar this friday as we round things out before the long weekend it's time for a friday tech edition of rapid fire so here to break down the headlines we welcome john ford gina sanchez ceo of chantico global and a cnbc contributor and ina freed chief technology correspondent for axios we are thrilled to have you guys all here let's begin with reddit reuters is reporting that the home of the wall street bets crowd is seeking to hire advisors for an ipo so it sounds like it's getting more and more likely the company was valued at 10 billion dollars in a private funding last month sources say that reddit hopes to be valued at more than 15 billion dollars by the time it debuts early next year but like Robinhood, could Reddit turn into yet another meme stock, John, or is that the point of the whole offering? Well, first of all, I love, Kelly, that you've got John, Gina, Ina. It's like every <laughs> permutation. But when it comes to Reddit, I think you've got to separate Reddit, the product, from Reddit, the potential stock. Remember, $10 billion sounds like a lot until you consider that, let me see, Pinterest is at $36 billion, Twitter at $50 billion, Snap at $119, Facebook at $1.1 trillion. But... Reddit was founded a year after Facebook and a year before Twitter. So why is it going to grow faster from here when it grew slower up until this point? That is a very interesting point, Gina. Let's get your take on it. Is this the kind of company you'd want to own as it goes public? And has the retail trading boom post-pandemic unleashed a whole new possibility, a frontier, whatever you want to call it, for Reddit's future valuation? Um, that's possible. However, I completely agree with John that they've been around for a long time and they've managed to catch some 
great momentum because of this meme stock craze. Um, but they're joining the game and catching up with their much, much, much bigger brothers and sisters at a time when Congress is still thinking about you know, Section 230, the Communications Decency Act, and it actually poses some real questions for that entire space. So it's just a challenging time to be coming in to this particular play. Wow, you guys are clearly not going to be part of the army here uh, once this thing lists. You know, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with Gina. I think when you look at Reddit, you know, what's great about it is it's this huge discussion board for the Internet. And it is really valuable that they've managed to capture that community. But on the flip side, that's a lot of content to navigate, moderate, be held accountable for. And they don't have Facebook-like advertising revenue against it. They have a solid business. They have advertising revenue. But, you know, Facebook is generating huge amounts of cash. Google's generating huge amounts of cash, which lets them weather the new restrictions easier than Reddit. You know, to be honest, Twitter has this challenge, too, where there's less revenue to cover a huge amount of content to moderate. And I think that's exacerbated with it, with Reddit. All right. There, let's look at the meme stocks today. Uh, some Trimming some slight declines here, uh, but their persistence has really confounded analysts, especially the whole size of the retail trading boom. Labor Day weekend, guys, means the end of summer and the beginning of fall. It's Apple season, literally the season of major product launches. The Apple shares have had a strong run over the past three months. They're up 25 percent after a slow start to the year. They closed at a record high yesterday, and Wedbush's Dan Ives highlights strong underlying demand for the upcoming iPhone 13. He says 250 million iPhones have not been upgraded in at least three years, so it may be about time. But just in time for the new phone, Taiwan Semiconductor John is hiking prices today, 20% increase. What's yeah. that going to mean for the 13 price and its trade-up attractiveness? I don't know if it'll mean as much for the price as it means for Apple's margins, at least in the near term, though Apple is big enough and have enough cash to weather it in the sense that what they tend to do a lot of times with their cash is they'll buy capacity so that they're the least affected by supply crunches and downturns. But i got to take this moment to reflect a mistake that investors make with Apple for decades, is short-termism, right? Because 10 years ago, it seemed safe to say Tim Cook's legacy will be judged by whether he comes up with the next iPhone and the next, like, marketing uh, genius idea after the Apple Store. It turns out, no, it was just execution. That's it. <laughs> what about the Apple car, John? Are you a buyer of that idea? That, that yesterday, people have been floating that, that that's going to be Tim Cook's legacy is the Apple car. No, I don't think it will be Tim Cook. Not to say they won't do it, but I think his legacy is secure. It's been 10 years, and it's a $2.5 trillion stock. And he came up with the Apple Watch. I mean, not him personally necessarily, but the company. AirPods, this whole thing continues. The services business. iCloud didn't exist before Tim Cook as CEO. Think about that. It's astonishing. I totally agree with you. One of the great transitions of all time. You know, what would you say about Apple, though? Uh, we have this. We also have their walk back of the, cloud, of the iCloud scanning for photos this morning. So they're under pressure on the App Store. They've reversed uh, course on that, sort of al possibly alienating some users. You know, they are, they do have a lot to contend with. Look, I mean, you know, they're a huge company. There's no more Apple the underdog, and they're going to have to juggle many things simultaneously, which you're seeing them do right now. I think, to John's point, I think they'll weather the chip shortage better than anyone else because they probably saw it coming, and, you know, they typically have their capacity lined up ahead of time. I think on some of these other issues, you know, there's a lot of pressure, particularly the App Store. You know, we've seen them make all these concessions around the edges to try and hold on to the things that they value most, which is no competing app stores, no competing payment mechanism, and full control over their commission structure. 
those things are still under pressure and I think will be over the coming years from suits and from regulators. Yeah. And again, as we show that chart there year to date, really impressive lift here in the last few months. Gina, I'm going to talk about NVIDIA, but if you want to also add what your position on Apple would be, please remind me. Um, but NVIDIA is up, I think, 75% now year to date and just got another upgrade this morning from Jefferies. They're taking the price target to 260. That's 16% more upside. So would you be a buyer of NVIDIA, Gina? What about Apple? Um, you know, these are NVIDIA especially is just one of the most the best performing names of the past decade. It just it, it astonishes uh, to keep watching it going here. So, yes, actually, Lido Advisors owns both NVIDIA and Apple. But I will say that the NVIDIA bet has been a bet that was already in place before the pandemic and just got a huge pandemic boost because they built out so much cloud infrastructure. And so their cloud and data center uh, uh, capabilities really put them on the on the front lines. But like I said, that trend was already in place and it's not going away. If anything, the, the move to the cloud has just gotten bigger. And John, what would you say about NVIDIA? Well, I think NVIDIA fits into two major trends that I'm looking at when it comes to chips writ large, uh, especially when it comes to the enterprise space. One is the mega scale cloud provider market. We were just talking to Marvell about that a few days ago. If you play there, in a way, it's great, but you better make sure that you've got some advantage either in your intellectual property or your diversification that keeps you from getting cannibalized by these mega scale players that are designing their own chips. So think about NVIDIA and even NVIDIA ARM uh, in that context. And then the other thing is customization, uh, and that's certainly where ARM comes in for NVIDIA and perhaps for other players, you have to be able to not just give them, hey, you can have any kind of car you want as long as it's black mm -hmm. when it comes to chips in the cloud. You've got to be able to do some kind of customization or the customer is going to do it themselves and cut you out. No, they've done extremely well. And once again, just note Apple share, uh, I'm sorry, Intel shares down fractionally today as this transition has been a difficult one for it. All right. Finally today, and speaking of gaming, Morgan Stanley is declaring Activision Blizzard one of its top non-fang ideas for 2022. They've gotten overweight, a 120 price target on the stock. It's currently around 81. That's 50% upside from here. Activision shares, though, have had a tough three months as they grapple with legal issues and executive departures. Morgan Stanley is confident in the Blizzard pipeline and the dominance of the Call of Duty franchise, despite some reopening challenges. You know, tell me, Activision Blizzard, all the gaming stocks actually have, they had performed so well, they're clearly taking a pause, a bit of a reset here post-pandemic or close to post-pandemic. Does this make sense to you as a kind of top pick going into 2022? Well, you know, it does make sense to me that people are wondering sort of where are we with gaming? I mean, you're coming sort of hopefully maybe out of the pandemic. You know, how much time are people going to have for gaming? I'm really probably think the the demand is always there for gaming. So I don't see that going away. I do think the industry is reckoning with a couple of things. I think you're seeing some stuff about the culture of these game companies and they're going to have to spend more time on the workplace they create. And then I think the other thing to watch for with all the gaming companies is, you know, how productive were they during the pandemic? So, you know, the gaming industry was one of those that we really wondered how well they would do through remote work. Um, a lot of collaboration, a lot of long hours typically in the office. Can that be replicated? So I think both of those are still question marks. Gina, are you a buyer of uh, Activision Blizzard? 
So I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, so Activision, remember, it, it had a huge pandemic boom. And then, you know, it's not only been grappling with the news that you talked about, but also just the fact that they're now going up against really difficult comps, but they're settling at a level that was higher than they were during the pandemic. So in some ways, even though, yes, they're down significantly from where they were a year ago, um, they're still much higher than they were two years ago. And that's the point. They've managed to actually benefit from that trend. And the question now is, can they hold on? I yeah. think they can. And John, I saw you nodding there. We have to go. But you do think this is going to be a big cultural shift for them? I think more. There's a big question around platforms in games right now and who's going to control them. Companies that used to be application companies are trying to be platforms that people subscribe to and buy. But, hey, Microsoft and Sony are trying to do that, too. Apple and Google have been trying to do that and get challenged. Unity Software and Epic and, you know, all of them are trying to do it. Who ends up getting the platform and getting the profit benefit is the question. That's where your bet is. And an open question. Interesting. All right, guys, thank you all. John Ford, Gina Sanchez, and Ina Fried. John, Gina, and Ina in rapid fire today. We appreciate it. From investments in cold brew, juice, and yogurt, and coconut yogurt to vertical farming and student housing. We're going to talk to a venture capitalist about all of this. What's working in his portfolio and what's next? Don't go anywhere. On and off campus, student housing continues to expand across the country and held up well during the pandemic, despite downturns in enrollment. One of the nation's largest providers of student housing campus apartments saw significant rental growth last year and this year already. Joining me now is David Edelman. He is the CEO of Campus Apartments, among many other things. David, it's great to have you. Welcome. What kind of start are we getting off to here in the fall? Well, you know, I personally just dropped my daughter off to college uh, about a week ago. So, uh, I, I, you know, they're all back at it, excited to be back in school. I think, you know, it, it's, it's a different momentum than they had last year at this time, that's for sure. Prices are up, though, for off-campus housing. That's what we heard last week. They are. You know, demand has, it's been a strong demand. And what you're seeing this year in particular is there was a cohort of students that took a gap year last year that are also coming back this year. So you have a little more volume on the front end of universities this year than you've had in the past. Yeah, although a little bit of volume now at what could be drying up later. I think the Wall Street Journal was uh, writing a piece just in the last week or so about the decline in enrollment that's expected to be an existential challenge for smaller colleges and universities starting around 2024, 2025. I don't know if that's the kind of thing you worry about now or if you just say, you know, we're not modeling population growth. Well, you know, Kelly, there's over 5,000 colleges and universities out there, and it's like any business. They need to adapt. And I can tell you this, in five years, 10 years from now, there's not going to be 5,000 colleges and universities out there. They're, they're just some that aren't the value proposition for mom and dad who are paying the bill. It's just not there. And so where Campus Apartments focuses at kind of the top 100, 150 schools, we're not really worried about a decline in enrollment. And you think those are going to be fine. One more question in this zone. I want to ask you about a few other areas as well. But real estate so far has been the top performing sector in the market for 2021. Does that make sense to you? And what kind of future returns do you think are realistic? It does make sense to me. I read your earlier report about the housing index and where housing prices are. And I, I agree with what you said. I, I think real estate's always been a safe asset class for investment, both, you know, someone's home as well as institutional real estate where we play and uh, you know that that slow and steady growth of current income you can't beat that and I think you have on top of that COVID slowed a lot of construction starts and with raw materials a little more expensive and labor shortages that kept the supply uh, boosting the values.
Yeah, so you're in the camp that, you know, and obviously big real estate guy, but you do think it's going higher. Let me ask you about a few other things that you're involved with at Darko Capital. Wheels up, juice press, lids. We've seen a tremendous amount of new companies coming to market this year. A lot of maybe buyer's remorse of SPACs. I don't know if you want to weigh in on that or if you think, you know, wheels up, of course, being a recent IPO. Um, is this all a good thing, this democratization of access for the public, or do you think retail investors are getting a bad deal here? I think it comes back to education. You know, Wheels Up, I'm obviously biased, but the truth is Wheels Up is a real company with real revenues. And what you've seen here is some of the SPACs are playing in deals that just might, those companies might be a little too early to be public and be in the prime time. So when you have a company like Wheels Up that just announced our second quarter revenues over a billion dollars, that's a real business. Right. But don't you think that taking 20 percent is just a bad deal, period, by the backers of these SPACs? I, I think it all comes into, remember, they don't get that money unless the, the SPAC does well and it performs. So as long as there's alignment with shareholders related, and that's certainly how we did our deal at Wheels Up, uh, you know, if the shareholders win, they win. That's okay with me. All right. Well said. David, thanks for your time today. It's good to check in with you. Thanks for having me, Kelly. David Edelman is the CEO of Campus Apartments. Still ahead, Chevron could reportedly be the latest big oil name to face off with activist investor firm Engine Number 1. We have those details next. Welcome back, everybody. Activist investor firm Engine Number 1 is reportedly revving up to take on Chevron now in its latest ESG-focused proxy fight after meeting with executives. Leslie Picker joins me now with that story and the latest details. Leslie? Hey, Kelly, a source close to the matter telling me that Engine Number 1 did meet with executives at Chevron. However, this is not yet any sort of official campaign, and it's unclear whether Engine Number 1 has even amassed a sizable active stake in Chevron. That said, the journal reporting earlier that the ESG-oriented activist firm had been putting out feelers to Chevron investors to see if they'd be interested in forming a group to take on this company. Now, as of now, this appears very early stage, but it's getting attention today because of Chevron's oil major peer, Exxon. Engine number one, if you recall, took on Exxon earlier this year in what was at one point largely considered this long shot proxy fight, and they won, securing three out of four desired seats on the board. The defied odds, largely a result of engines push to make Exxon more sustainable, for, uh, forcing the hand of other large investors who had been outspoken about making their own portfolios greener. So on the heels of that success, it's not too surprising that engine would seek out its next target, carrying a play out, playbook that worked. A spokesman for Chevron telling CNBC that it has, quote, contingency plans to respond to events, including an activist investor. The company noting that it engages regularly with shareholders and looks forward to discussing the next chapter of its lower carbon story with them later this month. Kelly. Leslie, do we know what engine number one's goals are for Exxon? We for Chevron, you mean? Either way. <laughs> Exxon and Chevron. They obviously have three seats on the board there. Uh, with Chevron, it's a little less clear. However, their whole ethos, the whole impetus behind this firm is this idea of, you know, taking on companies that may not have the uh, top ranked ESG profiles, oil majors, of course, being in that category, and going in there and trying to help shift their strategy to be greener and and lower their carbon footprint. So that was certainly the case with Exxon, as well as changing some other traditional activist things like its um, capital allocation strategy and, and some cost efficiencies and things like that nature. And then it's expected that these conversations are centered around uh, the carbon strategy at Chevron as well. So you would expect that the next campaign that 
engine number one officially launches would be in that same category sure. of ESG. Yeah, I'm just curious to see what that looks like in practice. Leslie, thank you so much. Leslie Picker, and be sure to catch her hosting CNBC's special fall reset tonight with a closer look inside the five speculative corners of the market that have defined investing this year. It's at 6 p.m. Eastern time. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.